This podcast is brought to you by the Village of Bedford Park, your home for business. Over 450 businesses strong and growing with a safe, reliable Lake Michigan water supply. Visit VOBPBiz.com and bring your business home to the Village of Bedford Park. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. This is Chicago's news traffic and weather station, News Radio 105.9. Now, the WBBM Noon Business Hour. It's 12.03 on Wednesday afternoon, May 24th. Good afternoon. Thanks for joining us. I'm Rob Hart. Netflix has been talking about limiting password sharing for months now. It's actually happening. We'll get the details in our next segment. Right now, the proposed Northwestern University Sports and Entertainment Complex at Evanston is by no means a done deal. Let's get the latest from Bob Reed, business writer and contributor to Chicago Magazine. Bob, thank Thank you for joining us today. And we have a good old-fashioned town versus gown conflict in Evanston. Rob, you know, Northwestern and Evanston both started in the mid-19th century. It has not always been an easy relationship, but this is rapidly becoming one of its most contentious issues. Uh, The whole thing is about the rebuild of Ryan Field into what you called correctly a sports and entertainment complex. It's an $800 million rebuild. Uh, the rub here is that they want Northwestern wants to expand it and add up to 10 music concerts or other large events. That's going to require a zoning change uh, from the city of Evanston, and it's opening up all sorts of discussions about why have this project and what's in it for Evanston, and more importantly, the people living around it, What's it going to do to them if they start adding concerts and other things like that to the mix? And just give you the contours of the debate here. Uh, the Northwestern football facility for decades, Dyke Stadium, got a makeover just as the team started experiencing some postseason success uh, into Ryan Field in the late 90s. That renovation is now 25 years old. And even with all of that work, the, uh, the, the Northwestern football stadium is still very small when compared to other facilities in the Big Ten. So this, at the very least, would bring it up to par. But as you point out, if you've ever been to a Northwestern game, uh, it's in a rather uh, well-to-do part of Evanston, and it goes up against a rather well-to-do part of Wilmette, and the homes around the stadium are filled with people who are used to being listened to. And one more thing, you know, it's not that easy to get to as well. You know, you have to do it by car and or bus. The new uh, proposed stadium is going to be state-of-the-art. It argues that it will be environmentally friendly. It will handle issues like noise and traffic congestion. Uh, In terms of parking, that remains to be seen what's going to happen. Northwestern's argument is that this is going to be a top-flight, state-of-the-art stadium. It's going to add to the community. The community, in response, is saying, look, we could put up with maybe seven or eight games a season But having all of these other concerts and other events is going to really take a toll on the neighborhood, and they're up in arms. But more than that, it's also become a citywide issue as well. Some people think Northwestern is taking more than it's giving in terms of uh, taxes and revenues. As you know, Northwestern 
is, uh, you know, doesn't pay taxes, property taxes in Evanston because it's a nonprofit. And uh, th- this number really jumped out at me. Uh, if this thing actually gets off the ground, this new Northwestern Sports and Entertainment Facility, it's a 35,000-seat stadium. That means it's bigger than the United Center, bigger than the Allstate Arena, with a considerably smaller uh, parking lot and footprint. And as you pointed out in the story, uh, during football season, you park in the lots, you park in someone's driveway, you park in a golf course, and if you're opening up the possibility for more stuff to take place there, then some uncomfortable conversations are going to have to happen. Well, parking is going to be an issue no matter what, and even if they do add charging stations and uh, ride-sharing facilities and such, it's still going to be controversial. Northwestern points out that it's actually shrinking the footprint of the current uh, from the current stadium. Uh, I think that they're looking to do maybe 32,000 or 28,000 people uh, per game per event. They think that's going to translate into less traffic. Uh, the city and the surrounding neighborhood don't buy that. And so you're absolutely right. Uh, Accessibility, parking, transportation, uh, all of those things are going to be top of mind before this goes through, if it goes through. Well, as long as Mustard's last stand uh, can can remain in place, uh, everything will be okay. Bob Reed, business writer and contributor for Chicago Magazine, thank you for joining us today. Coming up, it's password-sharing crackdown time at Netflix. Cashing in with conversation. The WBBM Noon Business Hour continues. Netflix is beginning to limit customers' sharing of passwords with other users. Let's get an update from Tom Lason, media analyst based in Seattle. Find him on Twitter at Tom Lason. Tom, thank you for joining us today. This was an idea that has been kicked around for many years. About 10 years ago, I remember doing a radio segment about the fact that Netflix was finally going to crack down on the uh, password sharing on its streaming services. And what was really the holdup for, for, for all this? time was it technological did they have to find a way to make it work or did they consider password sharing a form of free marketing in an era of free money Um, i think it's a little bit of both yes there were technical hurdles to overcome um, but i will also say this too reed hastings you'll recall he actually came out and said during this period quote love is sharing a password but the model has changed substantially um Early on, with early adopters, as is the case with a lot of technologies, the rush is to just build the book of business. Um, Profitability gets pushed to the side, and it's all about gathering subs. Can you get the size and the eyeballs and the critical mass aggregated quickly enough to justify your programming costs with the eye on someday making a profit? Well, guess what? Someday came. Netflix has been net profitable for a long time, but enough profit and justifying the expense of high cost productions is where we're at here, particularly when it comes to um, trying to capture some of the audiences coming out of cord cutting. Um, There's been a lot of competition um, based um, on trying to capture that audience at a low price. That worm is starting to turn now, and password sharing is going to go the way of the DVD service, which is into the rearview mirror. And this this may not be a perfect analogy, but it kind of reminds me of what happened in print, where they put the newspaper or the magazine online for anyone to read. People stopped buying the paper version as a result. And then after maybe 10 years or so, people getting this stuff for free whenever they logged into a website, the paywall went up. And a lot of people weren't happy, but people learned to live with it. 
Yeah, I mean, there's, this is true in any business. Um, it's, it's the cost of acquiring customers. Those are acquisition costs. And it, they're, they're promotional um, ideas. It, it's a discount, if you will. So this is a strategy. Much uh, I think the newspapers stumbled into that strategy. Um, I think Netflix's um, idea here has been more intentional for a while because, you mentioned, this has been discussed for a decade. Um, so now, yes, um, you, you love your Netflix. You can't live without it. It's going to be one of the multiplicity of serving s- streaming services that are coming into your house on the wire and now the question is, is this the one you stick with? When you get the notice that pops up of somebody sharing their password um, with you that says, hey, listen, uh, sorry, but now you're going to have to create your own account. How sticky is Netflix going to be? Netflix says they had a little shrinkage in other countries where they've tried this, but eventually people came cr- came crawling back to resubscribe to Netflix. Um, so we'll, it'll be interesting to see what happens here in the United States. Any projections on how much uh, this is expected to uh, to pad the Netflix bottom line either, either through this new honesty policy? Because if you do want to add, uh, share your password with somebody legitimately, uh, that's an extra seven ninety nine a month. Yeah, yeah, it is. I haven't done the math on that to, to know what, what kind of revenues they're talking about. But here's an important thing that I did see. A um, hundred million people are on other people's passwords. And I was surprised by this number. That is 43% of the company's installed uh, global user base. So yeah, that is a lot of revenue that's not being captured. I mean, with 40, it's, imagine if you were giving your service away to your product to 43% of the people who use it. That's very difficult to justify almost in any scenario. So it's all, again, about moving into profitability or moving into more profitability to plow a lot of those profits back into programming um, to keep people on your service. Tom Lason, media analyst based in Seattle. Find him on Twitter at Tom Lason. Thanks for joining us this afternoon. Coming up next, a couple of national retailers beat the street with their latest reports. Money conversation that pays a big dividend. The WBBM Noon Business Hour continues. Retailer Abercrombie & Fitch has released a surprisingly good first quarter report. The same is true for Kohl's. Let's take a closer look with Jennifer Waters, Chicago-based business writer. Jennifer, thank you for joining us today. And let's talk about Abercrombie and Fitch. Did I uh, like walk through a, a time warp into 1999? All of a sudden, uh, it's a Wall Street darling. The stock up 20%. Well, yeah, because you've missed the period, the transformation period that probably started about 2015 or so, maybe even sooner than that. I mean, as you know, I mean, Abercrombie and Fitch, it was, you know, a, it, it, and it, it, it was proud to bill itself as a preppy place for rich kids. And, uh, you know, and their sizes were like ranging from anorexic skinny to still pretty thin out there. I mean, it, you didn't fit in anything. And it was just, I mean, think about all the sexuality and the advertising and all of that. And that, you know, that resonated for a while. But then, you know, during 2007 and eight, you know, things just fell apart for Abercrombie. It took them a few years to realize they had to, um, you know, reset their course. And they did. And now you're seeing that, you know, they're seeing the changes. One of the biggest changes we've seen is that, you know, in those days, it was really just T-shirt and jeans. And there were only certain kinds of jeans. And there was a lot of Abercrombie logos out there. And now they've just really turned themselves into a lifestyle type store. A lot more pants, for example. It's not all denim anymore. A lot of dresses and such for women. They really turned around the women's business 
about a year or two ago, and then men's business is just now starting to turn around. And they're just really, you know, trying to be rather than, you know, in the olden days, trying to be very exclusive. Now they're trying to be very inclusive. Yeah, this way. I mean, I was in high school and college uh, during the the cultural peak of Abercrombie and Fitch, and they were everywhere. I mean, it, it was the mm-hmm. store that defined itself by what you were not. Uh, they did uh, when Dawson's Creek was uh, the biggest thing right. going. Uh, they outfit everybody on the show. There was that song by that group LFO, <laughs> Summer oh, Girls, wow. about uh, I like girls who wear Abercrombie and Fitch. And and then, yeah, there was a, there was kind of a cultural reckoning for them. There was a documentary in which everybody had to apologize, and uh, it's it seems like they had to turn they they turned everything around. So it's uh, pardon me while on this trip down memory lane, just talking about back when Abercrombie and Fitch was the thing. Let's move on now to another retailer that's kind of timeless, and that is. Kohl's. Uh, good good products at low prices, and you can imagine they do fairly well in inflationary times. Well, Kohl's is like their numbers were a surprise to Wall Street. Wall Street didn't expect them to do as well as they had. They were actually expecting them to to post a loss versus a profit, and the profit wasn't huge, but a you know a profit is a profit. And you know Kohl's has got kind of a spotty history in certain things, but they're making a lot of transformations. Um, one of the things that you will see in there now are the Sephora shops um, that they started opening. Those used to be in pennies. And um, they've started opening Sephora uh, counters in Kohl's. I think they started about 2021, and they still, you know, they're they're probably about 50 to 60 percent through all of their stores right now. And the question is, are 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 they bring? They're definitely bringing in more customers because of that, because you can buy those things that you wouldn't be able to buy at a Kohl's normally in terms of makeup products or, um, you know. Uh, perfume and such like that but now um so now they're you know they did that to bring in more more uh customers they're also expanding their merchandise categories into things like pet and home decor and you know some gift giving items that they didn't really have before they always had some home decor stuff but it was more like kitchen gadgets but now they're going more into you know something you might find maybe even in a home goods and so that's kind of helping their sales too. But they still have a, a tough slog ahead. And because they're a mid-price store and we're seeing inflation really hit on um, mid-price consumers, mid-income consumers, they, you know, th- there's a little uncertainty ahead for them. Jennifer Waters, Chicago-based business writer. Thank you for joining us today. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. This is Chicago's news, traffic, and weather station, News Radio 105.9. 
The WBBM Noon Business Hour continues. Good afternoon, I'm Rob Hart. These are the top stories on News Radio WBBM. Charges have been filed following a suspected arson fire at a suburban religious site. Concern about the economy grows as a government default deadline approaches. America's top doctor is issuing a warning about social media and kids. In Personal Finance Wednesday, things you can negotiate when buying a house. WBBM Business, the markets are lower, the Dow is down 250 points. The Nasdaq is down 115. S&P 500 is down 36. 65 degrees right now under mostly sunny skies at 1231. Topping our news at the half hour, charges have been filed following a fire at the Shrine of Our Lady of Guadalupe in Des Plaines yesterday afternoon. 41-year-old Virginia Roque Furman of Arlington Heights now faces a felony count of arson. Police say officers saw her walking away from the scene and observed soot on the front of her clothes. Investigators say security video shows her gathering items and starting the fire. Damage is estimated to be more than $75,000. Talks over the debt ceiling in Washington are said to not be going well, making some economists nervous about the economy. Concern is growing as the United States moves ever closer to the brink of an unprecedented default on its debts. Jeffrey Korsnick is chief economist at Fifth Third Commercial Bank. This kind of drama is never good for the world economy. That being said, we believe that both parties have an incentive to take it to the brink, but neither party has an incentive to take it over the cliff. Even if Democrats and Republicans reach an agreement soon, Korsnick predicts the U.S. will see a mild recession, likely toward the end of the year. Matt Bigler for CBS News, San Francisco. It's 1232 as the noon business hour continues. Markets are in the red today. We're joined by Chuck Lieberman, Chief Investment Officer at Advisors Capital Management in Ridgewood, New Jersey. Chuck, thank you for joining us today. I talked to a, a finance guy yesterday and he's a financial planner, and he says his phone is ringing off the hook uh, with clients who are concerned about the state of their investments uh, if there is a default. And uh, what he's been saying just over and over and over again is is relax, and, and there's really nothing you can do about it. Nerve-wracking, certainly. Uh, both sides are playing chicken with one another, and by definition, that means that they have to take it right to the limit if they uh, settle too soon. Uh, it means somebody gave up uh, perhaps more than they could have, and therefore they'll push it right to the right to the last moment. So we're we're all stuck with it, watching it. Uh, it's irresponsible, but nonetheless, it's happening. And then, you know, what are what are some of the uh, even though everybody seems to believe there will be a resolution by the the, the the time the deadline rolls around, whether you believe it's June 1st or June 15th, that everyone seems to believe this will be solved. But there seems to be some near term things that are happening at the very least as far as as the bond market is concerned. You're starting to see uh, a little bit of uh, some signs that people are paying attention. Well, for sure. And then the stock market is obviously also down in, in response to the fact that there's no deal. So, yeah, people are nervous, uh, understandably so. Uh, nonetheless, uh, it doesn't make sense for, uh, for the U.S. to default. Uh, that will get neither side any accomplishment and, in fact, will hurt them politically. So they have every incentive to come to an agreement, just not, not too soon. And if if you have the, the the stomach and the talent and the ability to do it, there are some uh, buy low, sell high opportunities uh, while this uh, debt negotiation drama continues. Exactly right. Um, 
the fact of the matter is the U.S. can't be allowed to default. So there has to be an agreement. Uh, I think most professionals, almost all professionals, agree that that's the case. So the nervousness creates a buying opportunity. You just have to be willing to take the plunge. Depending on who you're talking to, everyone seems to have a, a different prediction on on how the rest of this year is going to shake out. But if there is a momentary downturn or a mild downturn in the economy uh, beginning this summer and then lasting through the end of 23, what does that mean for the Fed's interest rate policy? Are people starting to uh, bank on the idea that maybe there will be not so much a pause, but even a cut before the end of the year? Well, the Fed has told us that there will not be a cut before the end of the year, and there's good reason to believe them, uh, mostly because the economy shows no signs of turning down. When you look at economic growth, all the positives uh, are in place. Uh, all the signs are green. We see job growth at a, at a rapid clip. Uh, we see some uh, in- inflation not receding as much as the Fed needs it or wants it to. Uh, there's really nothing that tells us that the economy is on the verge of a decline. Um, Everyone is projecting a decline. We've been hearing that for about a year and a half now. It hasn't happened. And whatever you can see in, in terms of the economy, it's still positive. Chuck Lieberman, Chief Investment Officer at Advisors Capital Management in Ridgewood, New Jersey. Thank you for joining us today. Coming up next, America's top doctor issues a social media warning for kids. An economy of words. The WBBM Noon Business Hour continues. U.S. Surgeon General Dr. Vivek Murthy is calling on tech firms and parents to take immediate action to protect the mental health of kids using social media. Let's discuss the situation with Ina Freed, Chief Technology Correspondent for the News site axios.com ina thank you for joining us today uh when when the news came out yesterday that uh, the uh, surgeon general wanted a, an age limit on social media our morning news anchor cisco Cotto said how about 50 because <laughs> if adults are having a hard time with uh, what the social media algorithm is throwing at them kids don't have a chance yeah you know i'm of a couple minds of this but i certainly your point is one that is resonating through my head like i pay attention these days now twitter has gotten especially toxic but when i go on i pay attention to how is my mood going in when do i start feeling bad and that's a lot to ask of a kid to do and it's it's not even the uh, i mean we we talk about uh, misinformation or hoaxes or fake news or or fake ai portraits of of things that aren't ex- actually happening that's always topic a b and c when it comes to the harmful effects of social media but the 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 real bad stuff in my mind is is stuff that's a lot more benign and that is instagram or tiktok uh just showing you a life that you don't have and maybe it involves people you know Yeah, I mean, I think for kids, body image and sort of the fact that we all present this false image of ourselves, but then we take it in as if those are real images, those are all really big issues for social media, as is cyberbullying, as is, you know, making fun of people who are different just more broadly and in different groups. So I think there are a separate set of concerns that are significant um, and I think are real. And essentially, as, as parents, we have to we have to do the work if the social media companies aren't. If, if you're going to craft a policy that will address some of the concrete concerns people have about social media, let's begin with cyberbullying, where you can have hundreds of people 
pile on a child or a, or a teenager uh, where when you know 20 years ago it's just a handful of people who would be on your case and now it can be an entire school uh, just acting through their phone anonymously yeah I mean it's certainly one of the earliest problems I remember covering a case 20 years ago of just horrible cyber bullying um, and obviously the problem has continued you know I think the idea that you know at least when I was in middle school, if you were getting bullied, that ended at the end of the school day. Now it can get worse. Uh, is, is certainly is certainly worrisome and troublesome. The legislative fixes, though, are, are not easy and often have unintended consequences. And then what about some of the technical fixes? Thinking back to uh, TikTok saying they were going to limit users of a certain age to just an hour per day. Um, is that actually working or has somebody already found a workaround? You know, I'm sure kids will find a workaround. I think the hard part here is, again, I think the best thing to do is for parents to really know their kids. One of the things that I was struck by in the report was, you know, it really says that some kids fare much better and it's really about knowing your kid. Um, Are they the type that's susceptible to the harms of social media? Um, And I was also reminded that the Surgeon General uh, you know, 70 years ago, put out a similar report around television. And I think some of the same issues apply. So it's important to remember that we sort of always have this reaction to new technologies until we learn how to live with them. Ina Freed, Chief Technology Correspondent for the news site Axios, based in San Francisco. Thank you for joining us today. Join us at this time tomorrow for Technology Thursday and still to come on Personal Finance Wednesday, areas where you can use negotiation when buying a home. You're listening to the WBBM Noon Business Hour. It's Personal Finance Wednesday, and there are some things you can and should negotiate when purchasing a house. Let's discuss some of them with Steve Kirch, Real Estate Editor with MarketWatch in Chicago. Steve, thank you for joining us today. If you're going into this process for the first time, where are some areas that you, as the buyer, where do you have your leverage in negotiating not only with uh, the lender, but also with the uh, previous owner of the home? Uh, good afternoon, Rob. Yeah, it's. I think it's. we've been in a seller's market here for such a long time that uh, folks might have forgotten uh, the art of negotiation on real estate contracts. And obviously that starts with price. That's the one everybody knows you haggle over. Uh, But you can haggle over your mortgage rate with your lender. Uh, You can shop around for mortgage rates. And you can haggle over the fees that you might pay the mortgage lender as well. There are other fees that come later at at the closing table. Those can be negotiable as well. Uh, They are also possibly negotiable with the seller uh, picking up some of those in order for you to close a deal. I would caution, though, that um, in the current environment, you know, there's so few homes on the market that, uh, you know, sellers are still have the upper hand, but more of them may be willing to deal today to to get something done. And then what are some areas in the realm of home improvements uh, that you can ask from uh, from the seller, uh, especially if you have a, a home inspection and some things pop up, can you get the uh, seller to address them as a as a condition of uh, of closing? Right, for sure. If you uh, you should have a home inspection contingency clause in your contract. After that home inspection, you can use that report 
to ask the seller to make any major repairs that may have been pointed out in that report or in the alternative to negotiate to lower the price or give you a credit at closing. Uh, And then you can also look at some of the fixtures in the house, maybe make sure that those are included, that they're not going to be taken, a special light fixture, something like that that you might want. Uh, those sorts of items are also negotiable in the physical property realm. So it has to be within reason. Don't say, look, we're not going to close on this house unless you put on a, a spare bedroom. <laughs> right. It, it has to be something that, that they can do. Um, And that it has to be something that you can't do, right? We're not talking about changing a light bulb or something like that. And then, um, I mean, in my case, you know, the first house that we bought was a foreclosure and you were dealing with the bank and uh, you got nothing. It was just basically, do you want this house or not? And even when you tried to get information on the shade of atrocious yellow that they used to paint the house, you couldn't even get that. So uh, there are some places you can succeed and then some places where uh, the worst they can say is no. That, that's the that's the whole point, right? That's what negotiation is. Uh, you got nothing to lose by trying. Steve Kirch, real estate editor with Market Watch, based in Chicago. Thank you for joining us today. If you missed any part of today's show, you can go to our stream and just skip back to the time you want. There's a pause and rewind function. It works both online and with the Odyssey app. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only twenty five dollars a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Protect your vehicle's engine with a full synthetic oil change and save with Mobile One at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Purchase five quarts of Mobile One full synthetic motor oil and receive a $10 O'Reilly gift card after rebate. See store for details. With your Mobile One purchase, you'll also receive two times points during Old Rewards Bonus Points Month at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one, they're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com.